Welcome to the Denver Deep Dive Podcast. We are your hosts, Charlie Cummings and Lorenzo Gonzalez. Thanks for joining us. Our focus is on bringing awareness to the expert knowledge, passion, and personalities that have been and continue to be part of Denver's vibrant growth. We'll be exploring commercial real estate, cryptocurrency, cannabis, food and beverage, and health and wellness, along with the experts operating enthusiastically in each space. Every episode will showcase the individuals impacting these arenas, what they see as industry participants, and what new insights you can take away for yourself and your current ventures. We know we aren't the only shamelessly curious people out there, so if you love learning for its own sake, you're in the right place. Follow us on social media, wherever you consume your podcast. On today's show, we welcome Nate Osborne, Denver-based real estate attorney with Montgomery Little & Soren. Nate's expertise lies primarily in helping clients with disputes involving property rights and their real estate transactions. He also helps real estate and medical businesses by acting as their full-service corporate attorney. Now, what, make, what makes Nate's practice as unique as it is, is his significant trial and transactional experience. So he brings a lot to the table beyond the ability to assist in the transaction. Nate, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So I guess the first thing we're really curious on is, you know, what got you involved in this profession, in this space, and kind of how did it happen? Um, kind of random, actually. Um, so I, I graduated from law school in 2007, and I had a, a job waiting for me in Colorado Springs working at the district attorney's office um, in El Paso County. Worked there uh, for a couple of years. Um didn't make any money there. Started looking for ways to, <laughs> to make some more money. Um, I mean, it was a great experience. I learned how to go to trial and things like that. Um, uh, applied for a job here in the tech center. And then my mentor was really big into real estate. And I started learning real estate. No prior experience mm. in any way, shape or form whatsoever. Learned a lot about real estate. Um, and then kind of sort of developed a niche um, because of my uh, trial experience. I could go to trial. Um, uh, but then I also learned the real estate market. I learned real estate law. And, uh, and so now I've kind of developed a niche where I'm a person who knows a lot about real estate law, but I'm also willing to go to court and, mm. and talk about that. So I learned a lot from my mentor and kind of fell into the game, but learned to love it. That's so, fantastic. so it's yeah. really kind of being able to do the whole thing soup to nuts. Yes, no, needed. exactly. Right. Awesome. Yep. Well, I mean, so Charlie and I obviously have a, have a very specific interest in, in commercial real estate, real estate investing, et cetera. Uh, what about real estate was it that really kind of piqued your interest? Um, so it's it's uh, it's 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 a fascinating subject matter to me because kind of like what we were talking about before the show started. Uh, um, it's in it you know you, the financial component. It's it's an investing uh, component. Real estate law in general is very complicated and interesting. Um, you have the title component. You have um, access. You have um, landlord tenant issues. You have lease issues. You have contractual issues. So. You know, uh, from my vantage point, it's one of the most intellectually uh, mm. stimulating subject matters because there's there's so many different things that you get to learn. And so um, it's not like someone who's in personal injury or something like that where you have the same issues over and over. Every single one of my cases is, for back of letter term, or for lack of a better term, a kind of a disaster. And then you kind of have to figure out how to resolve this disaster. Um, that's a, what I do. A lot of, you know, right. a lot of my work consists of that. So, well, yeah. And, and I would imagine that even if you were working with the same exact type of asset, you're going to have wildly different scenarios because, you know, not every single apartment or industrial building 
even though it's an apartment or industrial building, it's going to be the same. Exactly. And um, so you have different issues in different jurisdictions. You have more rural uh, buildings that have their own set of, of issues. You're working with local municipalities all the time. You get to interact with very interesting people. Uh, most real estate investors are I mean, you guys work with them all the time. They're interesting people. Mm -hmm. They're people who are willing to take some risks. Um, they're more entrepreneurial um, people who I get along with very well. And then also, it's it's cool. Um, you're you're always working with people who uh, you get you get to help them realize their dreams. So they have this this vision of what they want to to see occur. And whether they're they're fighting with their tenant or they're fighting with someone, you help them you know move from point A to point B and actually realize upon their dream. So you actually generally have happy clients, mm -hmm. which is uh, sometimes uncommon in, in my world. You know, a lot of times people are dealing with um, people who are in horrible situations who are not happy. So it's, it's cool to see, you know, help people out, realize their dreams. Right. Well, so, you know, you, you've got a lot of experience and, and exposure to things that have happened and are happening in Denver. What are some of the things that you see sort of in real estate with, with law, um, things that, you think are specific to, to kind of like the Denver and surrounding areas that are, are of interest? Um, so a couple of things that I, that happen to me all the time or, you know, cases that come in the door are, <clears throat> there are always boundary disputes. So Denver uh, and surrounding communities, especially Denver, it was, it was started a long time ago and it was started uh, as a smaller city. I mean, smaller, generally speaking, it's expanded and grown so much. And there are so many issues with, um, alleys. Who owns the alley? Is it a private alley? Is it a, a alley that's owned by the city of Denver? Um, entire communities were platted and built um, uh, not within the the, the lot and block uh, lines. So you have structures that are encroaching on the other person's property and vice versa, and entire neighborhoods that weren't built specifically in. And 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 the reason for that is. Well, one, you know, surveying was a little less sophisticated than it, than it is now. And then two, people just didn't care as much. People were seemingly just more generally um, open to, you know, people trespassing a little bit. And that's that's kind of changed. And so you're dealing with older buildings and uh, transactions now where you're trying to close on a deal where the building's encroaching on the neighbor's property. There are um, overhanging roofs. I see that all the time where the roof is encroaching on the neighbor's property. What do you do? You know, how do you how to fix a problem that's existed for 50 years. Mm. Um, so that, that, that's something that I'm seeing all the time in the Denver market. Um, access is, uh, there's always access issues um, where, you know, people have just generally used a road or used some way to access their building for, for a long period of time. And, but there was no real legal right to do that. And so then no one just said anything about it. No one said anything about it. It was just an historic usage. And, mm -hmm. uh, but the road isn't public. It's a private road. It's on mm -hmm. someone else's property. See, see things like that all the time. Interesting. What about, you know, uh, landlords, you know, I work with a lot of tenants and everybody gets scared about landlords being too predatory. It's just as far as the lease negotiations. And then once they're in there, they're worried, oh, they get really going to be taken care of. So how many times do you get engaged by a tenant and usually landlords like, you know, backs off, gives the, what they should be doing or how often does it go to any escalate from that point? So, so my, so my experience, uh, so I've, I've represented landlords and I've represented tenants. Um, the, the more, I mean, it's just like, it's going to be like a supply and demand situation. Mm -hmm. The more, uh, 
desirable a space is, the less leverage the tenant's going to have. You're going to have to deal with the, what the landlord says nine times out of 10 because the landlord can just move, look elsewhere, right? right. The less the desirable the space, the more leverage the tenant's going to have to negotiate um, some more favorable terms. Um, you know, the, some of the issues that I see a lot in those sort of situations are tenant build-out issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I mean, never are, you, you can never anticipate the issues that are going to arise when you go through the tenant build-out <laughs> process. <laughs> you, I mean, you'll never, you'll never be, so you, you have this lease and you have the addendum to the lease that talks about the tenant's work that's going to be completed. It's never good enough. I mean, you can get an attorney and do the best you can, but issues arise, uh, timelines change, and then you have a tenant that has to move spaces. The work's not done. What do you do? Mm-hmm. Um, so I see the, the most leverage uh, for the tenant and the most room for negotiation is to try to tie tie that up for the the you know the tenant the tenant improvements that need to be done before moving in. Um, you know, landlords there because there's no template to deal with that. Really, right. that there's a lot of negotiation that goes on there. One thing I'm curious about too, because I know that this came up in some of the early meetings that I had when you and I first connected and when I first met with uh, with Aaron, uh, we're seeing a lot of new condo developments going up in Denver. It seems like, because I just moved back here a year ago, there was issues in the past with condo developments, condo conversions, and there was a halt on the amount of condo supply that's coming to the market. And, and, and we're seeing that start to change. What what has kind of happened in that space that's led to that? Um, so there's been there's been some reforms with regards to construction defect litigation. There's been some case law that allows for um, developers to theoretically have less potential liability. There was a there was a run on um, construction defect litigation for a period of time, and we're. Uh, I'm not saying that's going away completely, but we're starting to see a little less of it, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Um, uh, the laws were very favorable to uh, community associations um, right. suing on behalf of all the constituents um, without necessarily having to get all of their approvals. And so it was really easy for um, a lawyer to sue on behalf of all the residents. Right, and you and, likely didn't have everyone involved or even aware of the exactly. taking Right. So that's changed. There's some laws that make, you know, make that a little bit uh, more difficult. And so I think we've seen an uptick in in, in condo development as a result of that. Also, um, lots of I've done a lot of uh, business uh, condo uh, conversion. So commercial buildings where you have an ownership and they want to sell off or have uh, uh, a unit, a unit specifically identified within a building that they can they can sell off, they can lease off. Purchase it, and he owns that space for his practice. Exactly, and so you have you have business owners, a lot in the mm-hmm. medical field, which I do, own the building, and then lease off one of the units to someone else. So they have an appreciating asset; they have rental income coming in, mm-hmm. and then they own their specific unit, which is, right. I mean, smart. Everyone should be doing that, really. Right. You know, interesting. Well, so I guess one <laughs> one more thing, like, final way to tie that together: How do you see you know real estate? and real estate law in Denver kind of mutually shaping each other because it seems like, you know, a lot of these past issues that have kind of arisen are getting resolved and, and the city's finding a way to, you know, have the environment, the, the developed landscape, the tenants, the landlords all cooperate a little bit more. So I think Denver's very pro development. I mean, I've seen um, the, the, the way it's worked, so I go to a lot of these meetings and talk to a lot of people in the industry and the way it seems to work is you have a development issue like uh, 
Rhino, for example, you know mm -hmm. how they're you know developing up there. So you have a group of people who want to develop a certain uh, part of Denver. They voice their concerns. They have these meetings. You know, they get a, a somebody who works at the legislature to to back some sort of uh, law that will help promote this concept. A uh, lot of community support, and it and it and it seems to get done a lot better than you know other communities like Boulder. And mm -hmm. there's there's some communities that are way more difficult, <laughs> you know, way more difficult to get any development work done. But Denver doesn't seem seem to be that way. Yeah. You know, it seems to be very you know the law and the legislature and everyone tries to work together, uh, you know, for the greater good and the pot industry. I mean, since the pot pot came here, I mean, that's had a huge impact on, uh, development and, and real estate and everything else. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, um, it's curious that you mentioned that. So how, cause that's a very specific kind of new frontier that's still being defined. How is that influencing kind of real estate and law and, and the way that people are, are trying to operate out of properties or, it's meld the two industries together. It's a huge, huge impact. Um, it's it's really like you were kind of talking about, Lorenzo. It's uh, cutting edge sort of stuff. So um, it's still uh, a little unclear how you know federal law and state law and how those mesh together. Technically, right. um, you know some of the stuff that state law approves is is illegal federally. Mm -hmm. It's really hard from a lawyer's perspective to know what to do sometimes. Um, right. Uh, the practical um, evolution seems to be everyone's liking where this is going, you know, <laughs> seemingly, right. um, you know, and people have their own positions on pot. I'm just speaking on behalf of how this is affecting the real estate market. Yeah. Uh, pot businesses are getting leases, uh, marijuana grow shops, sales, and that's just increasing rent <laughs> prices. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so much, um, uh, so many buildings are owned by people in the pot industry. So many tenants uh, are related to the pot industry. It's increasing rents. It's increasing values of property. It's probably had a net overall positive impact on real estate in general, mm -hmm. in my opinion, regardless right. of what your thoughts are on pot, but it's not going away. So, yeah. you know, my opinion would be adapt to the times because it will, it's not going away. Right. There's been a, a, a tangible creation of value for other people that aren't even involved because the properties are, are, are worth more. Everyone. Possibly because of rent growth. But what I've seen is there's some, there's some owners that, you know, don't want those uses and that's fine because there's certainly tenants that don't want to be next to, you know, they don't want the smell or they don't want whatever. There's something about the, yeah, you know, the... so, so it, it works, I think for both. It, it makes those, non-sort of cannabis uh, properties, even of value too, because now you have people that are wanting to be with non, non, you know, cannabis use types. And so, and owners that don't want that. So I think for both, it makes, yeah, on all fronts, it makes, whether they're cannabis use or not, it's going to, it's going to create that value. There's lots of landlords that don't want marijuana related businesses as tenants. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's fine. And they just, they, they make that uh, actually we include that in leases that mm. you know that's not a right. an allowable usage of the space and I get it um, because <laughs> really all it would take is some change in federal application of the law and and there's a raid and right. yeah you lose right. a tenant and they seize the assets and that, what do you do then right so there's definitely a risk from a landlord's perspective they're kind of just relying on past historical, Right. Uh, policy Im implementation. So I understand the people who are fearful of it. Right. Well, and you, you sort of touched on, on this before, but what are some of the seemingly common sense things that you see people doing 
either incorrectly or maybe not attending to properly in our industry, whether it's, you know, tenants, landlords, um, folks that end up in, in situations where they need to rely on your expertise? Um, most common thing, uh, some of the most common things, people will dive into real uh, property transactions without um consulting with an experienced uh, commercial broker or an experienced attorney to help them write these various contracts, mm -hmm. especially with the tenant, tenant improvement stuff, those can mm -hmm. be, you know, no timetable. So you have a contract that is, um, well, inherently uh, contradictory. So you don't know when the work has to be done. You have a tenant who's losing one space and having to move into another space. They have clientele that needs sure. a space to go to, especially people in the medical industry and things like that. So, so you're in a situation where you could lose a lot of business. Um, uh, title, I, I see a lot of, uh, people who aren't, or completely unaware of, um, the title issues that are involved. Um, they'll close on a, uh, building or a residential space, um, and not be aware that there are encroachments, that there are access issues. Um, and so, uh, honestly, when you, when you talk about one, one of the issues with our industry too, is the, um, uh, the the, ba the 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 rules of where um, a commercial or residential real estate broker where where pra where they start practicing law and where their role as a real estate yeah, where it's very begins and ends it's very okay. fuzzy and especially in the title mm -hmm. world it's very fuzzy because you guys are all trained that you know you can't really analyze or give legal opinions on title implications even though a lot of sophisticated real estate brokers are are very capable of being able to do that, but they're stuck. They don't want to practice law. And so, right. you know, there's title issues that come up. They have to do what they can do to advise their client in a non-legal way. And then they're supposed to say, well, call an attorney, but a lot of people don't want to pay money for an attorney. So you see people taking risks that maybe, right. and I, I don't really know how to resolve that problem. I mean, I think I have a lot of uh, real estate agents who I kind of partner with who will just throw one of their clients my way and you know, I won't charge them or I'll charge them very minimal just to help them because they're my friend, you know, in certain situations like that. But mm -hmm. if you don't have that sort of partnership, I don't know. I mean, what have you seen? I don't know how you deal with that issue. It's difficult. Yeah, I always advise. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't want to get in that gray area for right. sure. And the same thing with taxes. People ask me all about that. I'm like, look, I'm not a CPA. I'm not, I'm not here to practice tax and I don't want to practice that. You know, that's, I want to sell real estate. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and that's what I know. So talk to your CPA and if you don't have one, trust me, I got some great recommendations. So. And that's kind of Lorenzo's world too. I mean, that's that's another thing, the tax right. tax implications where you're like, you know, what what's my basis in this property and what's going to be the capital gains implications? And people ask me those questions all the time. Which yeah, is, and, and that's, and you know, we, we were talking about this before we started. That That is the interesting thing is they're, they're, you know, real estate is a jumping off point to so many different industries that it really requires a great deal of attention to know you know, where your expertise or where your ability to advise really begins to end because, you know, Charlie is probably very thoroughly steeped in certain aspects of, of real estate law, but at a certain point, you know, it doesn't make sense for him to be the one that's delivering the advice. And there's a certain point where, you know, a person might need certain tax expertise that, that you or I may not have, and they need to go talk to someone who is a, a, a CPA or a tax attorney specifically. And, and knowing these kind of demarcations is tough. It's really tough, and you can get in a lot of trouble. I mean, the 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 problem is, is if you don't <clears throat> have a good awareness of where the your scope of authority ends and begins. Um, you know, I've seen Dora come in, and lots of people getting in trouble. You know, 
for 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 exceeding the scope of their license authority. So it's really tough, but it doesn't help when when you have issues come up and you need to make quick decisions. That's that's where it becomes difficult. Because these transactions, you know, it's not like you're buying a pair of shoes where you can just you know leave them at the counter and go think about it. For yes, a week. right. You have to make you have to make you have a day. You have 24 hours to make a a, a decision about a title issue about whether mm-hmm. you're going to get out of the contract because of a mechanics lien, you know, or 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 what have you. And uh, so those that's where I mean a lot of my cases come from issues like that. Interesting. Well, yeah. So it, this is this is cool because you know Charlie and I have a have a kind of mutual passion for other people that also have passions about things, and and, and we find it really cool to talk to folks who who can take a subject that most individuals wouldn't think of as you know being interesting or engaging, and they make it interesting and engaging, and, and you seem to do that. So, you know, what are some of the ways that you're either giving back or contributing or, or helping your particular industry and profession to to move forward? Um, so <clears throat> I spent a lot of time talking, <laughs> I, I, uh, so that, that, and honestly, it's another <clears throat> life advice or business advice sort of thing. If you have the ability to go just talk, um, that's a good thing. You know, that's something that should be, uh, promoted. Um, and, and, and once you kind of establish yourself as someone who's willing to go out and just talk with people, you get asked a lot to do things like I'm doing today. So I go out and I'll teach classes. Um, I'll speak at events and I'll, 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 uh, I'll, I'll talk and teach younger attorneys things. Mm-hmm. I, I, I teach classes to real estate brokers. I'll teach classes to surveyors. I'll teach classes mm-hmm. to people who touch this industry. And so I get asked a lot to do those sort of things. I really like doing it. Um, you know, it's hard to make the subject matter, uh, seem interesting, you know? So, so I think if you have the ability to talk about this in an interesting way, that's a, that's a valuable skill to have. And so I try to, I try to give back by just, you know, mentoring and teaching. So I do that all the time. That's cool. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, your initial interest was peaked because someone that was a mentor for you really loved what they did. And you sort of saw that and said, Oh my God, I, you know, I want to dive into that because it seems really stimulating. That's exactly what happened to me. And he was a great mentor. Um, he's, he's retired now, but he, he, uh, he loved real estate and he piqued, piqued my interest in it. And, and I'm, I've been lucky enough to have a, be able to have a career in mm-hmm. this, in the subject matter. So that's cool. Well, and, and so, you know, one of the, the groups of individuals you mentioned, you know, you know teaching and talking to are, are younger attorneys for someone who might hear this and be thinking to themselves, you know, they already know perhaps they're, they're in law school right now. Uh, or maybe they want to be, and they don't quite know how they'd want to maybe specialize. What, you know, advice or suggestions would you give them in terms of what to do, what not to do, if, if they find themselves attracted to, to law and then to real estate law more specifically? Um, so law school is an, in, an interesting beast. Um, you, my initial piece of advice would be you got to be um, all kind of all in. Um, it's a big commitment. It costs a bunch of money and it's hard to know that until you experience it. So it's, it's a, it's a catch 22 because you're a 22, 23 year old (laughs) kid. You don't know what you're doing with your life. Right. So a lot of these people just kind of go to law school without having any direction. I was kind of the same way. I can't say that I was, you know, a hundred percent all in on being a lawyer when I went to law school, it worked out well for me, but I see other people it doesn't work out so well for. So you're, you're, you're investing so much money in it. It would be better if you knew that's actually what you wanted to do yeah, with your life before, before you made the job. It's really hard. Um, it's a lot of money. If that's something that you want to do, um, I would make the recommendation that 
you know, <clears throat> unless you're going to your Harvard or Yale's of the world, um, find a find a law school where they get a scholarship and in-state tuition. Don't get just totally blasted with debt. Yeah. Um, it's not worth it, you know. Um, uh, fr- from the vantage point of if you could go to get into in-state tuition, like I went to the University of Nebraska Law School. My law school was relatively comparatively cheap. Got a great education. Mm-hmm. I'm great. You know what I mean? Right. Um, had I gone to a private school that was similar caliber, I would be so much more in debt. And it think about it, you can invest sense. that money in real estate as opposed to you know. <laughs> exactly. No, it's, it's 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 totally it's totally true. So I just being just being fiscally smart about that. I mean, if you right. get into Harvard, yeah, you got to go there. I mean, there's there's yeah. there's certain exceptions to that rule, and also, you know, not going to, you know, it's probably not worth it if, if the only place you can get in is the worst law school in this in the country. I don't know. I don't know if I would. I, I might. I might think about different things. Sure. And then also too, once you get out of law school, um, putting yourself in a position for thinking about this whole thing long term. I think. Uh, uh, younger uh people or, or just people in general they're so impatient with their career paths <laughs> or their career goals and i'm even saying like millennials i mean people have, oh, you know, yeah, i'm, no, I'm we, gonna we, be we love i'm gonna be 38 years old you know so uh it, i mean it works the same for everyone but just you know picking a job because you're gonna make four thousand five hundred dollars more per year mm. stupid right? right in the grand scheme of things it's not means nothing it means nothing and you right. got to be thinking about long term. If you if you get an opportunity where um, you can develop a client base and you have autonomy and freedom to go flourish and to go, then do it rather than taking maybe a safer job where you're making three. three I mean, if you're making a hundred thousand dollars a year more, then maybe <laughs> maybe you do it. But right. I think too many people make decisions based on very very short term mm-hmm. gain. Well, and, and so this is the thing that I'm already seeing as, as, as really cool and a common thread with some of the guests that we've spoken to, patience and really thinking about what you're doing. And, and this is something that you know, you're making very clear is important regardless of industry because if, if you can have the patience to figure out what you want to do, why choosing that particular path would be meaningful uh, and, and, and really kind of mulling it over, that seems to be the thing that is recommended as setting you up for success more than simply saying, well, let me just Google what industries pay the most. Oh, that's, I mean, exactly. And there's, I mean, you can make a lot of money being a real estate lawyer or you can make, you know, not a lot of money. I mean, it's kind of, the choice is yours, <laughs> but going out and hustling and developing your own client base. I mean, that's, that makes you indispensable. I mean, people, you can be the smartest attorney in the room, but if your phone isn't ringing, right. you're, it doesn't matter. You've got to know how to open doors and fill a pipeline and engage with people. Eventually, or you're not, you're disposable. I mean, it's sad, but you are. You have to develop your own client base. And so putting yourself in a position to develop your own client base, I think in mm-hmm. any industry, your industry, yeah. especially in real estate, if you don't have your own client base, what are you going to do, man? So, 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 so get a job where you can do that. I don't think, I don't think very many people think about that. Right when no. they're deciding where to work. Well, because I, I feel like, and, and this is obviously a, a blanket statement, but I think a lot of times higher education gives us very specific technical skills. We learn how to do certain things, what to think about, you know, what traits are required by the industry we want to go into. And we're not taught as aggressively, how do we be our own production centers of value? You know, if, if someone dropped you off in the middle of nowhere, 
what would you do? Could you could could you pull relationships and opportunities and money out of thin air? Uh, and that's it. Sounds like that's kind of what you're saying is you know if you can develop your own clientele base, if someone forced you for some bizarre reason to not live in Colorado, you would know how to you know reestablish and find new business for yourself. Because yeah, you've earned that ability. Yes, and 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 it's hard when you first get started to do that, but once you start, I, I mean, I tell younger attorneys all the time is and people in the real estate industry in general is develop a niche and then you can branch off. You can always mm -hmm. do more than your niche, but you have to have an elevator pitch. This is what I do. Mm -hmm. So then people think in their head, Oh, that's what Charlie does. Mm -hmm. He, he specializes in blah, blah, blah. And then it helps right. people know to come to you when right. that issue arises. That's the best way to get started that I've found. Mm -hmm. And then that doesn't mean that's all you have to do, but at least they know that you know a lot about, that <laughs> you know, right. and the, and the more esoteric the the that is, <laughs> the better off you're going to be. Right. Lorenzo is the only person in the state of Colorado who knows X. Right. You know that's that's helpful, I think, to develop your practice. Yeah, that reminds me. I was listening to a Grant Cardone interview, and he talks about you know being or having a post. You know, obviously, as the CEO of a company, his job is to be the post. You know, in this case, you're saying you know have. Have your niche be your post. Have something that you can reference initially, build kind of a, a career and expertise around that, and then, yeah, branch out. Yes, exactly. Um, but if there's no post, and, you know, and, and this is a whole other broad discussion that we couldn't possibly get into, but it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's the human need to have some sort of consistency somewhere in our lives. If there's no anchors, there's no consistency, there's no post, we're just, you know, nebulously floating ephemeral sacks of skin. Yeah, exactly. No, it's, it's very true. Very true. Awesome. Well, this has been really, really, uh, I think, interesting and, and valuable. And it, it's, it's cool to hear the consistency of, of what you're saying and recommending and how it fits in with other things that we've already heard. Uh, so where can people learn more about you, you know, your work, how they want to engage with you, et cetera? Yeah, you just go to my website. I, I know that's a cliche standard response, but MontgomeryLittle.com. Happy, happy to chat with you. I chat with people all the time about anything. So um, MontgomeryLittle.com, email me. I'm also on Twitter at Nate G. Osborne. Um, just, yeah, happy to talk to anyone about the real estate industry. Fantastic. Well, Nate, thank you yeah, so thank much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Yeah.